Uh, but SpaceX, is, it, it was intense. In our case, you know, working on that Dragon project, there was like a smaller group of, of folks who were needed uh, around the clock. Um, in my case, yes, I, I literally uh, got rid of my apartment and was living either on friends' couches or in the back of my Prius. I have a pillow and I had a, a sleeping bag and I, I, I lived in my hatchback for uh, eight months. Welcome to the bell curve. Oliver, you're our first guest on season two. So let's uh, go, dude. What an honor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> a big Appreciate deal. It. A big deal. Um, and Oliver, really been looking forward to this conversation. I think um, it's been a while since we've got to like formally catch up in person, um, dating back to our kind of shared days, freezing our uh, hinds off in, in uh, upstate New York. But um, I know since then, like your, your thing has been serial tech entrepreneur and like really um, with the background at the top engineering companies and now in like the genomic and laboratory testing domains, like having that technical lens applying to solve problems in like new creative ways. So uh, thanks so much for joining us. Really excited to dig in. Really excited to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So and Oliver, I, I think for especially our audience who doesn't know that the technical details of, uh, you know, what you've done building, you know, um, rockets at SpaceX and the Dragon program and elsewhere, uh, would love to just start with, give us like some uh, kind of a recap of, of your career and what's led you into this kind of healthcare innovation um, space today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I definitely took a very nonlinear career path, um, which I think is becoming more and more common today. But uh, I'm a chemical and biomolecular engineer by training. So I uh, actually started my career at Dow Chemical and was very close to technical engineering. You know, I was doing things like process engineering with uh, big plants that were involved in bio research. They were involved in ag tech. They were involved in uh, specialty chemicals. So kind of jumped around there and then did uh, improvement engineering, became a, a green belt uh, project leader. And, you know, I was based in, in Silicon Valley. So I really got bit, I think, by the bug of the Bay Area and, and all this entrepreneurship that was surrounding me. Uh, I actually worked with Dow Chemicals corporate venture arm and, and just kind of shadowed uh, different deals and different projects that uh, that really started to interest me. And and that actually, you know, led me to kind of pivot away. I, I jumped and uh, started a, a company that was just this small investment company called Smacko Investments, um, <clears throat> mostly doing, you know, real estate investment deals, uh, very small scale, but that was interesting. That was kind of my first foray into entrepreneurship. And at the same time, I was tapped by a, a few friends that were at SpaceX um, to, to kind of jump over there, which had nothing to do with chemical engineering or biomolecular. So complete departure from what I had been doing. Uh, but they really needed somebody who could run projects of any sort. I had a lot of experience doing that. And, uh, and they wanted somebody who could just devote a lot of time to being, um, as, as SpaceX calls it, scrappy, and and you know really instituting you know core engineering principles to solve some of the roadblocks that were ahead of them, and Crew Dragon, which is the program that I supported, it was this initiative to launch uh, U.S. astronauts from U.S. soil back into space, uh, and this had never been done from the private sector, so they were up against SpaceX was up against Boeing primarily. Uh, 
Boeing was better funded. You know, the, the timeline was, uh, it wasn't clear who would win in, in that sort of competition. And um, it was, it was an honor. So I spent a, a, the better part of a year just literally living at SpaceX and, uh, and working on, on this program with phenomenally talented people. So that to me Elon has a thing where like he's established new housing and like the Twitter offices and everything. So was it, was it similar with you guys at, at SpaceX? Were you literally living at the offices? I, you know what I, I was, and a few other people were, I think it, it comes and goes, you know, Elon, I would say since I joined, so I came on in early, early 2018. Um, and so, you know, past five or so years, he's gained a lot of visibility and, and people I think know, the work ethic that he demands or that he kind of instantiates via the culture at, at each of his companies. Uh, but SpaceX is, it, it was intense. I would say it was, it's more so intense for the people that are on a particular project. Mm. Uh, so in our case, you know, working on that dragon project, there was like a smaller group of, of folks that were kind of expected or needed uh, around the clock. And that's not true for something like uh, Falcon at the time, which was just the rocket and a little bit better. So um, in my case, yes, I, I literally uh, got rid of my apartment and was living either on friends' couches or in the back of my Prius. I have a pillow and I had a, a sleeping bag and I, I, I lived in my hatchback for uh, eight months. Wow. So I, I, I love this. Um, wow, yeah. You come from Dow, which is like, over a hundred year old company founded sometime in the yeah. 1800s to like SpaceX, which is like built from scratch. I mean, Elon founded it, right? That's right. Yeah. It's like built from scratch company, like trying to disrupt all these companies that have been around for, for month, decades longer. Um, what was the belief when you guys were there? Like that success was elusive and the whole thing might just crash and burn literally and figuratively. You, you know, funny enough, it was it was kind of the opposite. I felt like, uh, you know, for certain folks, it, it was um, it seemed like it was almost guaranteed because you're you're mm. surrounded by a group of like minded people. We're all drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. And um, and, and you kind of view these challenges. There, there was no challenge or no obstacle that we faced that we didn't think we couldn't solve. So, you know, every, every problem was just an opportunity to come up with an inventive solution, uh, sometimes very simple, sometimes complex, but it, it, it didn't seem like there was anything that would come our way that, that would prevent us from realizing this vision. So I, you know, I'm sure that Elon himself and, and a lot of folks at the top felt like, um, you know, they, they sweated it, so to speak. Um, hmm. And I think that that's important as a founder to to really think that you know this company and this vision, it is fragile because it uh, it doesn't take a lot for things to derail your vision. But uh, but but at the level that I worked and and with that group of engineers, you know that was the most valuable lesson was really that any challenge that we 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 came up against, um, yeah. you know, it was solvable. And I love what you mentioned to me when we caught up last, Oliver, about kind of SpaceX's mission was really about helping humanity, right? And it, it wasn't just solving a really kind of technically challenging problem, which obviously it's among the most technically challenging problems, but like this mission orientation, this belief that you lean in hard enough and uh, with enough kind of elbow grease, you can, you can push through and, you know, break through the atmosphere in outer space. Um, so I, I, I love like everything you're characterizing and talk about like an interesting experience after 
being in the corporate environment and going into like this scrappy startup atmosphere. And so you already mentioned you caught the bug. Was the bug then intensified at SpaceX to, before you started launching your own ventures? Or like, how did that kind of fit into the, the, the journey here? Absolutely. You know, it was, um, it was so dramatic to see the difference between a Fortune 500 company. Uh, and again, Dow had great, talented people, uh, phenomenal, you know, phenomenal procedures and methodologies that were developed over decades. So I, I think I was able to take a lot of that. What SpaceX, though, what, what SpaceX brought was, I think I alluded to this, this notion of being scrappy and, and really attacking things from the angle that, hey, these are all solvable problems. Um, it, it really intensified that desire to fulfill a vision. Um, and it, it, it was a sense of belonging that I have to say a lot of these larger companies, you know, I was with uh, Dow through its merger with DuPont. And, um, and so I got to see a little bit of that uh, DuPont angle, which is, again, you're talking about a hundred year plus company. Um, yeah. And, and so I think you, you do lack a little bit of that, that sort of scrappy agility. Um, and, and, and that's where you can, you can put talent to the best use, in my opinion. You can really optimize um, you know, the, the talent that you have on your team when you kind of create a more lucid structure for them to operate within. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, that's what I saw at SpaceX. Uh, plus just the sheer coolness factor, right? Like it's really... <laughs> It was really cool what we were doing, and uh, it's easy to get people behind something like that. Yeah. So Oliver, what's like? What's one of the cooler stories or like experiences you had for that year that you were working there at SpaceX? Because that's pretty hardcore, man. You you would want something, some kind of payoff to come from something like that. And of course, for folks who follow SpaceX, like the Dragon, and like the projects that you guys were working on, turned out to be like history making, uh, in a sense. Uh, yeah, would love to hear just a little bit more about like, damn, I'll never forget this. This was like one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me. <laughs> uh, I mean, there were a lot of interesting moments, right? From uh, uh, talks with Elon uh, and, and bumping into him in, in, in the, the stairwell, uh, literally, to uh, uh, you know some of the technical engineering sort of challenges that we faced. But I guess one or two, you know, I, I, I do remember we had, uh, it, it was it was unique to me and, and sticks out to me because it was my first day, literally the first day on the job. Um, and SpaceX, you start off with orientation. So we went through this uh, really well-crafted orientation in the morning and sometime around, I'm gonna say it was around noon, um, orientation finishes and you basically go to your, your direct uh, supervisor and, and you're off to your job function. Like it's, it's time to get going. Mm -hmm. So, um, which, which by the way, is very different. Like at Dow Chemical, we actually had a week long sort of orientation where, where you do a lot of trainings and online work. So this was like, this was a few hours in the morning and then, okay, it's time to actually roll up your sleeves. Um, but I remember specifically they at the time were moving from, uh, one facility to another, the, Demo One uh, Dragon capsule, which is the first capsule that was ever made for uh, uh, for the crew test for, for Demo One. And in that move, it was going from, from one location in Hawthorne's campus, which is actually quite massive. It's like 30 something buildings, or was at the time, uh, to the main building, which is uh, HTO One. It's the big one with the, 
the uh, the Falcon booster right out front. So um, I remember that you know my my manager was responsible for that move, but he had a, another uh, basically another commitment that came up, and so you know within thirty minutes of me being you know, employed at SpaceX, he's like, I want you to lead the initiative to make sure that this vehicle is moved. I mean, it a lo- all of the prep work had, had basically been done, um, but he's like, you know, this is a a multi-billion dollar project, right? Crew Dragon. Um, the vehicle itself is millions and millions of dollars. And uh, uh, basically it's it's in your hands, you know, just make sure that everything goes right and if something goes wrong, you have the authority and the power to to stop it and and get it back on track. Um, and that was it. And he left. He kind of walked away. And so I, I really felt super empowered and um, and also probably more nervous than I had ever felt in my life at that moment. So, um, you know, I had to had to coordinate with a lot of different teams that were involved in that move. And, uh, and we got the vehicle ultimately to where it needed to be. Everything was connected properly. Um, and it was, it was going through a series of uh, assembly and, and test procedures. But, uh, but that being said, just the idea that somebody would entrust somebody else on the team with something so valuable um, and, and basically give, empower them to, to make these decisions, it, it just goes to show you, like, you, you, you it's it's fight or flight you know you you yeah. learn to to succeed or 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 you fail um and and everybody there is going to support you in your initiative to succeed man <clears throat> talk about uh quite the first day at work uh yes yeah. <laughs> man well and so you you experience this like kind of history defining um kind of humanity like the the kind of future of humanity um, defining like company kind of holistic experience. And then you got this, uh, you already had the kind of startup bug, but you made this kind of like almost, uh, unpredictable leap into healthcare through like what you mentioned to me before is like this, this interesting, like kind of connection that you made. Um, so I, I, how, remind me, how did this all happen? how did you like now essentially build like a multi-year career? doing things no one's done in healthcare before. Yeah, well, uh, so when I left aerospace, I actually thought I would uh, either go into another small aerospace startup or, or stick, uh, or actually go into finance. Um, and I was sort of a hobbyist investor. Uh, and, and at the time, you know, my resume uh, landed with a, a gentleman who was a 20 year cardiologist and had built a very successful cardiology practice. He had then sold it. And, uh, and he was a, a hobbyist um, sort of AI machine learning guy. He had built a technology stack. And then to deploy that stack, you know, he was CMIO at a, a, a group called Mercy Health in the Midwest and, um, and had, had kind of trialed his uh, tech stack within Mercy, but realized that it would be most effective and, and better aligned with the financial incentives if he were able to deploy it within a, a health plan, right, an insurance group. And so he um, he had just purchased a Medicare Advantage plan. So I, I when I, I got a call to interview with him, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I know nothing about Medicare Advantage, nothing about healthcare, um, but it intrigued me that that it, there was a technology component and there were some some new challenges. And, and basically, what he had pitched was 
this notion that, um, you know, that the technology stack was pretty effective when you have the longitudinal medical records that come with this insurance plant, yeah. but it'd be more effective if you have a biological data reservoir, right? If you get all this data from sequencing people, you know, using the latest technology on the market and you have a biotech company in this kind of health ecosystem, um, you know, I was, I was sort of convinced after talking with him, yeah, there would be a lot more that we could do. Um, so I immediately became kind of obsessed with that idea of advancing healthcare by kind of combining these disparate areas, these, these different, uh, uh, segments into one ecosystem. And I, I actually took up the, uh, the job and, and, you know, we, um, we co-founded, a, an entity that was uh, discovery genomics and, um, and discovery genomics really was a part, as I mentioned of this, this ecosystem that focused on managed care and, and we got to work sequencing. So, um, with the Medicare population, you, you've got an older population rich in terms of health data, uh, it, rich in terms of different disease states. And, um, and, and we were using actually whole genome sequencing, uh, so that we, we had, you know, as much data as we possibly could get, uh, we had in-house bioinformatics, and then we started feeding that back into what eventually became a, uh, a proprietary software called human insights. And we use that software to really, uh, start risk stratifying and, and better providing care to that Medicare population. Wow. So I, obviously I'm, I hang out in the healthcare space and like what, what you're talking about is on the bleeding edge. So like in a sense, you basically work with someone who's so good at building a tool to keep people out of the hospital and to keep them from being readmitted that he wanted to do it bigger, better outside the walls of a health system and decided, Hey, like the, we can do this even better than like the way I initially did it by leveraging like all this genetic data. And by pairing genetic data and clinical data, we can like actually figure out how to like improve healthcare. Is that fair summary? Absolutely. Yeah. So, which is like, literally this is, I mean, I, I feel like every single day I tune into like some sort of Google alert and there's like another major advancement. Like Epic is now adding genetic data and genomic data to, to their health records. And like, they recognize that this is like a huge thing. Um, but it's, there's a lot of complications with it. Right. And so like, were you essentially building something from scratch? Like, how did you, you obviously knew that he had this belief, like genetic data is like a key to unlock a door we haven't opened yet, but like, how'd you even go about tackling this problem in the first place? Well, yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, and by the way, Tom, uh, Epic, you know, we at, uh, before it was called Accelera, the parent company was called connected care, connected care, uh, we, we had a, a contract with Epic and we, we actually were one of the first, uh, to work yeah. with them on doing uh, a genomics interface and, and, you know, leveraging, uh, uh, some of those specific, uh, genes and, and getting them passed into BPAs. So that was, that was kind of a, an interesting, uh, time in, in 2019, but, you know, to, to kind of dive in, we, we knew that a lot of it would be kind of, um, ambiguous data. And, and so really the, the first crux was let's collect the data. Uh, let's not presume that we know exactly what we're after. Um, there, there's, there, there are some well-documented, uh, mutations that are of significance and, and, you know, there are a ton of other areas, um, 
that that are you know not to get too deep but if you look at uh, genomics in, in general a lot of people focus on the exome and and so this exome is a very small region of the the, the total uh, genome and it, it comprises you know less than than uh, a couple percent of, of what makes us us uh, but at the same time it's very well understood and um, and and we we had the notion that you know that's important, but there's also these other regions of the genome that um, we really want to capture, and and they may become important with time, right? As mm -hmm. as the scientific community uh, continues to do research and and we better understand uh, DNA, you know, let let's make sure that we have a robust and and very broad data set. Uh, so with that, you know, that was kind of the first challenge, and we got into things like informed consent. Um, and even legal, uh, which which wasn't something that I kind of initially anticipated. You know, we knew we would have to um, to obviously work with a, a regulatory team and, and develop kind of a uh, an informed consent package. But uh, I, I was viewing it more as like an engineering challenge and, and getting ready for these technical um, hurdles. And and it became very apparent early on that this was a much bigger concern to a lot of folks. Uh, than I even anticipated, which was, you know, what's my data going to be used for? And, you know, am I, am I at risk for being cloned against my will? Um, <laughs> am I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all sorts of stuff, but, but valid, right? Because you're dealing with, um, with very advanced, very personal data. So, um, so, so we had, I think the first challenge was really developing trust with our partners and with patients yeah. uh, to let them know exactly what we wanted to do with the data, what the intent was, how it would be stored, and, and, and things like that. And so once once we had that piece sort of put together, um, again, we were able to, to kind of dive in and and then start doing, you know, deeper and deeper analyses. Um, and, and that kind of led us to doing um, something that what, what ended up being PGX, so pharmacogenomics, um, which was a value add for the physician. Because at that point we had only looked at, you know, what's a value add to the patient and from the sort of insurance group standpoint, yeah. um, we found that a lot of providers wanted useful data to come of that. And, and that wasn't really a core initiative uh, at, at, at the beginning of discovery. So what we did later on is, is DG then had this, this package and we said, okay, uh, we're gonna collect the data from the patient we're going to obviously use that to risk stratify and, and provide uh, uh, recommendations for better care. But we're also to collect the blood that we're ultimately going to sequence. Um, in addition to, to doing whole genome sequencing, we're going to provide the patient and the physician a report. Hmm. Uh, and 99% and of, of the people in, in the Medicare plan had not had any prior pharmacogenomic testing. Uh, yeah. Which, by the way, pharmacogenomics, if you're not familiar, it's, it's just evaluating a person's genome uh, to better understand how their their body uniquely metabolizes different drugs. Uh, so you, you optimize drug dose and you optimize uh, which drug is administered to, to treat the patient for you know, a myriad of, of different uh, diseases or, or comorbidities. And in, in that case, um, you know, we ended up with a suite of PGX report to give back to the uh, the patient and provider, plus a, uh, a a great reservoir of data to then uh, 
you know, basically add value again to the patient, but also to the insurance companies that are facing, you know, these exorbitant costs to, to keep their patients healthy. Yeah. Wow. And, and obviously it, it uh, was, the market was tracking along very closely with this. I know um, to the extent you can share, um, I know there, there was a lot of, a lot of buzz around kind of Accelera and like a, a SPAC and um, hundreds of millions at play. Uh, and that kind of, that event um, was when you, you finally got to kind of realize your, the fruits of your labor and then move on to your new startup, uh, which seems to be somewhat in the same vein, right? Of like kind of laboratory testing and PCR and um, things that are, are highly complex um, that I have not done uh, a day in my life of, but um, tell, tell me more about like that, that transition, how you kind of, I mean, frankly, like what we ask all these founders about like yourself is, like, how do you even begin to plan for that? Were you expecting kind of that that um, merger SPAC to be like on the radar? Did it kind of come out of nowhere? And like, how do you eventually land where you are now at SCP? Yeah, we, we definitely hadn't uh, anticipated or that, that wasn't a, a part of the original roadmap. You know, for us, we were raising money and we were really just focused on the mission, uh, which was, you know, how do we better help risk stratify and, and ultimately improve outcomes within this Medicare population. So it was, it was all about uh, quality of care. Yeah. But what we did is, you know, we, we, we sequenced about over 200 uh, whole genomes. And wow. out of that group, we were able to, to get kind of this proof of concept going, uh, consolidate the data, clean it. And, and as I said, um, basically push that through human insights into a, uh, a quality management program we executed that management program on the side of, of the, uh, the health plan. Um, and at the time, you know, we, we actually started entering the world of value-based care and value-based care is, uh, you know, it, it, it's been termed, um, well, not to get too far into it, but essentially we, we started an ACO, the ACO evolved into what they call a direct contracting entity or a DCE. So ultimately we had a DCE as well. Uh, still Medicare population, just sort of a different uh, format to take care of that population. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, with, with the success of, of sequencing and the quality management program, um, we were able to improve outcomes and, and save money through the DCE. Yeah. And I think that's what kind of piqued the interest of uh, a few potential SPACs, one of which was Future of Health. And, um, you know, they, they ended up uh, doing a little more diligence and, and working with our team and uh, and wanted to, to proceed. So we actually closed that deal uh, in June of 2022. And wow. it was, as I said, largely based on that proof of concept, you know, that we had done and executed through the, the DCE. Uh, and the DCE was most that that was what was of most interest to Future of Health. Uh, yeah. The fact that you had that particular population and, and there were savings um, associated with you know, better care for that population. So um, we, we, after closing that deal, you know, I, I had been sort of um, interested in, in actually looking more at the precision diagnostics component of what we had been doing, because hmm. um, what I realized in, in assessing this, this massive pile of data and uh, and, and really driving it back to its patients was that uh, there was a big 
sort of paucity or, or, or lack in uh, personalized diagnostics, you know, yeah. in, in identifying or early detection uh, and identification of, of these different conditions. Yeah. Um, so, so that that piqued my interest. And that's really what SCP is all about. So that was founded with the notion that we want to uh, democratize precision diagnostics. Mm. So I love that. Basically, you, you exited this company because a, a much larger group saw the huge tech potential. Right. And like what you guys have done, which is, again, like I, I operate in the space and hear very few groups that have the success that you've had um in that kind of um like genomic like quality management like drug optimization i mean it's it's super cutting edge really excited to track along with how it kind of goes over the next five years if like every doctor ends up using it kind of to like diagnose and treat patients but now so you're in the precision diagnostic space so it's essentially the the limitation in my rudimentary understanding here is Oftentimes tests take a long time, they're expensive, and it doesn't really like do what needs to be done right away. But you guys have like a unique patent to be able to do faster molecular UTI testing. In fact, maybe you're the only group that has a patent to molecular UTI testing in the, the US, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, to, to take maybe one step back on, on SCP, uh, SCP is really focused, our, our core test is the molecular UTI test. We do uh, a number of other tests as well, um, everything ranging from hematology. You know, we, we have uh, a, a lot of blood-based tests. We do bladder cancer detection, um, but but molecular UTI is is really kind of special because um, there there is a, a unique patent. So uh, with with our test, uh, we look for over forty organisms that could be causing the infection, whether it's a single what they call monomicrobial infection or many polymicrobial, um, you know, we, we'll, we'll accurately identify those organisms. And then we'll go ahead and we'll do um, an evaluation of, of resistance gene testing. Uh, but in addition to just looking for the gene, we'll do, there's a phenotypic component. So we'll, mm -hmm. we'll actually look at the uh, different organisms in that mix and uh, empirically, you know, we, we can get a better understanding of what's going to work and what won't work. So to give you an example, uh, if you have an infection and let's say you have two organisms, A and, and B, um, organism A might be resistant and might have a resistance gene to uh, a well-known antibiotic. Organism B, uh, it might not have a resistance gene, but organism B basically can talk to his buddy A and say, hey, what's going on with this antibiotic? Uh, and, and organism A says, watch out for that. That's, uh, it's gonna kill you. And, and through that communication pathway, you know, there's, there's an interaction there that uh, allows B to survive, even though it doesn't have a resistance gene. And, yeah. and I think that's the key. You know, a lot of other tests, they only look for the resistance gene. Um, and if it's not there, they say, oh, great. It's not resistant. Well, that's not, that's not the case. That's not always true. Um, so what we're doing is, is we're trying to figure out what's actually resistant to antibiotics. Um, and, and, and that's obviously better for antibiotic stewardship, super important. But yeah. ultimately, it's, it, it comes down to what's most effective at eliminating that infection 
and, uh, and, and, you know, protecting the patient. Wow. That's so interesting. Over, so, um, I'm not in the healthcare space, so I'm like trying to follow along. So I guess more for the audience kind of zooming out a little bit, what would you say? And I, I think I, I like talking to guys like you because you guys are kind of at the cutting edge, you know, you know, what's coming down the pipe, you know, how are human beings going to be treated medically? How are we living? You know, what are you guys doing now? That's going to be normal for us in like 10 years that you know, maybe we don't even know that's coming up on the horizon, just based on what you've done um, kind of like at your last two companies. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing, like I said, with precision diagnostics, it's the idea that um, th when somebody goes to the, the doctor and they say, hey, I've, I've got this issue. I've got these symptoms. I'm not feeling well. There's still, you know, in, in 2023, there are still too, far too many cases where that person's going to get a very generic response um, from, from the physician or, or the, the, the clinician that basically will go down a list of, of sort of uh, standard diagnoses and, and standard treatments, right? Um, and, and that's not even, I would say that that's still commonplace uh, talking to a lot of clinicians that have recently graduated medical school, that that's still commonly taught in medical school. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons is because it's, it's only been the last maybe five to 10 years, certainly with uh, in the last five years, we, we've seen a huge uptick in awareness. Um, a lot of that, I think, led by the pandemic, right? Now, yeah. now people know what PCR is. It's kind of commonplace to, to hear that term. Uh, and, and, and before the pandemic, nobody outside of biotech and healthcare really knew what that was. Um, what percentage actually knows what PCR stands for, though? That's the question. That, that's the thing. Yeah, know, it's. Yeah. Uh, but but hey, if if you know the acronym, then I think we're making progress, right? <laughs> uh, so so the idea is that I, I think still too many people go to the go to the the doctor's office. They don't feel well, uh, and they get kind of a generic response. And I think in the future, you know, we need to have the tools available, uh, and we hopefully those tools are also. Uh, cost effective. You know, there's a lot of work being done to show the economics of using those tools. When do you use those tools versus when do you not? But I think, you know, you should be able to go in, have the appropriate tool that's pulled out of this uh, tool belt and used to diagnose your particular issue based on your biology, right? You know, and, and you could have two people with exactly the same symptoms who are experiencing completely different uh, conditions, and and the right treatment could look, uh, you know, completely unique for each person. That's the power with precision med or, or personalized uh, treatment guidance. Is that you know we can kind of pinpoint what's going to work for each person. So I, I think we're we're finally getting there. Um, I think this is the decade where that becomes commonplace technology. Interesting. So you're saying right now when someone goes to the doctor and the doctor basically is running through like a, it's like a formula or like a checklist based on what you're feeling and they being able to connect it to what it potentially could be. So it's like this combination of an educated guess and like throwing darts against the wall in terms of like, all right, we're going to try this over, like we're going to try this so many different ways until we finally get to like, okay, it's this, but 
You may need to spend days, weeks, months, potentially years and tons of doctor visits to finally get to the final solution. This is what it is and we can finally treat this, right? And what you're saying is the, the roaring 20s, as we call it, is about to be uh, this decade where we make uh, more innovations in medical technology so that when you go to the doctor and when you say a tool, what do you mean, like blood work? Do you mean like a, like a, like a, like a skin sample or like some, something like that where they're pulling biology from you right, um, right. and they can put it in some kind of thing that, that can get tested, whether that's sent to a lab somewhere and, um, you know, guys like you are like analyzing or like people who work for you are analyzing it because you've made the technology and it's like, yep, we know exactly what that is. 72 hours, we can turn around and tell you, yes, this is what you have. We've saved you, you know, six months of your life coming back and forth from the doctor. Um, and you can get relief a lot faster and get better a lot faster. And we save like the insurance companies a ton of money because they're not having to pay for tons of doctor visits and medications and like all this kind of stuff. Is, is that like what we'll essentially be experiencing in like the 2030s, you say? Yeah, yeah, you, you got it. I mean, that's that's I think that's where we have to go because uh, we're getting to a point as the population you know continues to age, we, we just can't rely on heuristics and and these sort of uh, uh, darts being thrown. It, you know, I, I I tell people with molecular diagnostics, which is a large part of what we focus on, um, molecular at the same time, it's not meant to be a a ubiquitous solution. In other words, uh, there are, I'll take UTI as the example, right? A urinary tract infection. Uh, UTIs are commonly diagnosed using culture. Uh, and, and molecular UTI, it's not designed to completely replace culture. The reason is that, you know, culture is still a, a cost-effective um, method at this, at this point in time. You know, that could change and hopefully does change uh, in, in the next couple of decades, but at, it, it currently it's going to be a cheaper solution um, and, and more affordable if you just basically take a, a, a sample, you put it on a plate, you let it grow for three to five days, and then you take a look at what the result is. Now, we know that a lot of times it's not as accurate as molecular. And again, it's it's traditionally just one sample, uh, one one target, right? If you've got multiple targets, polymicrobial infections, it's not going to be as effective. Um, but, you know, for, for somebody like you or I, or, or somebody who's maybe a little bit younger, hopefully a decent health, it's, it's not the end of the world to, uh, to wait that three to five days and then, um, you know, go on a, a regimen or, or, a, or a treatment that may or may not work. You know, worst case, if it doesn't work, um, you know, you, you, you may be able to kind of pivot and, and you'll ultimately be okay. For other groups of the population, they're older or they have uh, very severe conditions. You know, they could be immunocompromised. There are folks that, you know, you just don't want to take any unnecessary risk. And, and I think that's where uh, molecular diagnostics start to thrive. Is in those cases, it's it's worth and and frankly, there are economic studies being done that show, you know, if you spend a little bit more, if you spend a couple hundred dollars more, 
uh, to diagnose early and correctly what is wrong with that person. You will save thousands of dollars on the back end uh, in, in avoided uh, you know, hospitalizations or readmissions, yeah. uh, you know, you, you, you ultimately put them on the right course instead of going through multiple courses of treatment. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of data that suggests that uh, there's actually substantial cost savings when molecular diagnostics are used correctly. That's also pretty exciting. And, and another reason why I say this is the decade. Yeah. Wow. I love that Oliver, that basically you're helping to usher in the future where everyone walks in the doctor's office and gets a diagnosis and treatment just for them, right? That's Where right. it's it's at that point in time, super accurate. Like we're used to waiting for everything, um, and you know it cuts out all that guesswork. Um, I think what's super interesting is just like how your piece fits into the rest, which is diagnostics. It's so fascinating to me how difficult it is to diagnose things, right? Just like conceptually, you're, you're operating with like limited parameters. And one of our other guests, Tara, uh, I know her company like used machine learning um, algorithms to like analyze pictures of, you know, fecal matter from from both animals and humans and like understand, hey, do they have a parasitic infection? Um, it's like so interesting how there are limited ways to, to gather information, but we're getting better at using those limited sets of ways and getting faster and, and more accurate and then tying it into like this bigger picture kind of way that doctors and you know our, our health insurers can use it all to make sure that we're obviously staying out of the hospital which apparently costs like what 15 grand every time you go in the hospital your health insurance company pays right, about right. that. i mean mind <laughs> really yeah. yeah 15 grand every yeah. time oh. yeah it's, it's shocking yeah and then if you get readmitted sometimes the hospital doesn't even get paid for it it's like this weird thing where if you're like readmitted, um, it obviously it costs a lot of money as well. But depending upon the type of like health plan, type of um, type of doctor, like everybody's incentivized just to make sure you don't get readmitted, right? Right. Uh, and, and by the way, these hospitals, you know, they operate on razor thin margin as it is. Um, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them would rather. If you look at a hospital from from the perspective of you know number of beds available and and you know number of physicians that can devote time to treating patients, they would much rather devote those resources to treating really serious you know issues and conditions rather than having somebody who's admitted because a simple UTI, for instance, that could have been treated uh, wasn't and it persisted and now it you know it got worse and worse and then that person went septic and now they need to be admitted totally avoidable. Uh, and it's a condition where, you know, you, you're, you, again, you're throwing now resources that could otherwise be used to, to treat something like cancer or, or, or something uh, that, that should be more severe than a UTI. And, and so that that's what drives us to get the diagnosis right, get it right the first time as quickly as possible so that we can devote our healthcare resources to, uh, you know, the, the, the most severe challenges that are at hand. I love that. And then what, what's the end play here, Oliver? I mean, like, I assume like any kind of diagnostics company, like a, a path or a quest or, or another group, like could potentially be a strategic acquirer, um, or you guys could just go public yourself. Like what, what's the, the dream here? Yeah. I mean, I, I think for us, um, you know, our, our, our number one focus is scaling over the next couple of years. Uh, we want to scale nationwide and, and provide our services, uh, you know, 
basically where, wherever uh, wherever somebody has a a individual clinic, uh, a hospital, um, a, a practice, you know, a nursing home, even mm-hmm. we want to be and, and have the logistics available to serve that group, right? To serve wow. that need. Um, and as we scale and, and we're able to, to kind of provide uh, rapid diagnostics within these different markets, um, I, I think it would make sense for a, a sort of large use group to come in. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of targeting um, may, maybe joining forces with a telemed group. And I have to mm-hmm. say, we're actually working um, at, at this stage, um, we're working with a couple of prospective uh, telemed groups the leading one is actually a group called Room Health, um, phenomenal, phenomenal group, phenomenal owner, and uh, and and what we're looking at is you know a more digitized world. I think as uh, healthcare and healthcare services become more digitized, more immediately accessible, uh, so too should diagnostics. So so with that telehealth, the telehealth move, we really want to see a play that that. Kind of leads us to um, at-home diagnostics, right? Mm-hmm. So you move from point of care or, or needing to be in a physician's office to uh, to facilitating home kits and, and things of that nature that would enable a person to uh, to basically have a consultation with a physician, determine uh, what sort of tests might be most appropriate for them, and then have the capability of of doing that test in the comfort of their own home. And, uh, and, and I see that as being the future. So, you know, any sort of uh, collaboration or combination with a group that provides those services at scale, I, I think that'll change the way diagnostics and, and overall care delivery is, I think that'll change the way it's carried out. I love that. Um, I mean, there's just so much movement happening where it's a, it's a big trend right now. Like we get, we're used to getting healthcare in a hospital or in a doctor's office, but now, like there's a ton of funds flowing into care in the home, um, care in like retail sites. Um, and ironically, I didn't even know this, but like obviously before the advent of modern health insurance, most care was in the home and they decided, hey, that's not super sanitary. Operationally, it's really difficult to do <laughs> where you send out <laughs> doctors everywhere. So now it's like centralized and now it's decentralizing again, you know, it's kind of Kind of like what happened with cable. Cable decentralized all these streaming services, and now they're recentralizing. Um, exactly. You know, air, airlines were like centralizing everything. Now, like you have to buy your seat and your your bag and everything. Um, so, I mean, there's just so much movement in the space. CVS just acquired Signify and like has made public their their intent to like just send out fleets of nurses into people's homes. So, for what would that look like for you guys? You can like literally give something that's portable to these folks to do tests. Is that kind of the vision? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it, it's not feasible with every test um, and, and certain tests will always, you know, particularly we think about blood. Um, it's, it's hard to get somebody to correctly draw their own blood and, and you know, um, not everything can be done in like a finger stick sort of single blood droplet capacity. Uh, but, you know, with something like the urine, what was that? Theranos said you could do that. that <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's my point, right? Um, <laughs> so, so we're, we're it's dangerously we're, close to sounding. Oh no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, you you 
you have, um, and, and, and therein lies the, the, the value that, uh, you know, clinics and, and, and clinicians bring. You, you need a professional opinion and you need a professional setting by which to do a lot of this. Um, but that being said, there are certain hybrid cases where, you know, a physician that's accessible via telemed and a home kit with, with something like urine, you know, most people are capable of, of uh, collecting a urine sample and, and, and doing it sort of uh, unassisted. And, and so yeah. if we can provide services and diagnostics that leverage that sample media uh, to a really broad group, I think that we're going to see a, a dramatic improvement in a lot of these, uh, you know, in a lot of these conditions, uh, just like UTI. So, so when I think of somebody like Amazon, you know, that, that comes to mind that yeah. Amazon is making a bigger play. They recently acquired one medical uh, and they've, they've been making an increasingly larger play into healthcare. Um, I, I view that as a phenomenal angle by which to uh, democratize precision med, you know, mm. and, and, and make sure that it's accessible and available in every home in the nation. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of what gets me excited is, is, is that angle and, and hopefully, you know, more reason why uh, we'll see this kind of explode in, in the next uh, five to 10 years. I'm a big believer in it, Oliver. And then, I know your advice, you have, you have, you've packed such a punch into like your last five, 10 years, right? Uh, from founding multiple startups to uh, moving around industries. What's your advice for folks who are like looking to found startups? And in particular, like how have you chosen like the right partners, like founders and investors? Like what are, what are your reflections as you look back? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I would start by saying I haven't, uh, and, and just being perfectly transparent that, you know, I've, uh, like everybody, I've made mistakes. Um, I'm wrong more than I'm right. Uh, but I, I think what sets everybody apart is, you know, their ability to identify when they're wrong and, and learn hmm. from it so that they don't repeat those mistakes. Um, so, so that being said, you know, not, not claiming to have all the answers, but, um, having, having a, a few different startups under my belt, I, I would say, you know, it, it comes down to people and teams, in my opinion, as kind of a starting point that uh, the success of, of any endeavor really will lie with, with the people that are involved in it. And I mean, you know, talent within the company, uh, talent at the executive level with, with founders and, and co-founders, uh, and even with investors. So, you know, when I, when I look at potential uh, investors and, and, you know, the type of capital that I would want to raise, um, it, it would probably come from people who understand the space, are strategic in that space, and uh, and can either support the vision or, or even contribute to it, right? Mm. If they have the, uh, the sort of intellectual capital within that domain. Uh, I, I love domain experts that are, that are uh, also investors. So, um, yeah, I, I think having the, the, the right team uh, that, that can align to a vision and, and really execute against it, that, that's, that's kind of the starting point. Um, and then from there, you know, a, another big factor in success has been, honestly, not, not being too greedy, um, understanding that markets and, uh, and even business plans are dynamic, you know, things change. And so being open to that change and, and being willing to pivot when needed, I think has also been critical. Um, you know, COVID was a good example where 
we had done about a year of, at, at Discovery Genomics. We, we, we had done about a year of uh, sequencing and, and kind of building out the data set that we wanted to build. And then COVID came along and, and you know, um, we were kind of faced with this, this issue where no one was visiting the, the doctor, no one was leaving their homes. Uh, so collecting data and, and, and samples was uh, harder and harder. Uh, and, and meanwhile, we saw this need. So we pivoted and, and we started doing COVID testing and, uh, and and kind of got into that business for about a year before we pivoted back and, and started refocusing on our original mission. Uh, so all that is to say that, you know, th there are different uh, requirements, different opportunities that, that pop up. And I think, you know, successful companies are able to um, to make those changes when when they're required. Wow. Awesome. Oliver, man, this was, uh, like, uh, you're a wealth of information, man. It was really like for someone like me, who's not in the space and is hearing this stuff for the first time, it's like, uh, pretty exciting. And immediately my head goes to like, what is what, like, what's my life expectancy? You know, am I going to be able to be with my loved ones longer? Like, yeah. am I going to be a healthier old man? Cause it's like, I don't have to go through like this really, uh, it, the guy could say to the doctor, right? It's like, I'm not going to be an 80 year old man coming into the doctor every month. Cause it's like, I'm 80, you know, and it's like crazy. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to talk to people like you. It's humbling. Um, and we just really appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience. And I think people are going to, um, really love listening to a lot of the things that you had to say, not only at SpaceX and things that like are real topical and we hear about in the media a lot, but like some of the stuff that you guys are doing behind the scenes that, um, you guys are working on and, you know, I hope you, uh, help us live forever. So, um, that'd be, that'd be ultimately success there. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jake. Yeah, it, it's been, it's been amazing. Uh, thanks for having me on. And, and one last, uh, comment that, that you brought to mind was that, uh, you know, a lot of folks ask why why stay in this industry, you know, after experiencing the different uh, sort of uh, industries from from chem to aerospace to uh, to healthcare, you know, why stay with healthcare? Um, you know, to me, pun intended, the mission at SpaceX was very far reaching, right? Uh, going to Mars, occupying Mars. It's amazing. It's awesome. But it's also it's very far reaching. And the mission in healthcare that kind of aligns everybody is it, it's innately close to home, right? Yeah. Everybody goes through health issues themselves. Everybody has a family member or a loved one that gets sick. And, uh, you know, the idea that you can improve lives, it, it's, uh, it doesn't matter what language you speak, where you grew up, uh, what socioeconomic class you're in, it, it really unifies everybody. Um, yeah. And that's, that's something that once I connected to that, it was impossible to let go. So uh, yeah, I, I do hope that we all uh, live long and, and healthy lives. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm humbled to be a part of a, an industry that strives to do that. Awesome. Oliver, thanks for coming on, man. And, um, you know, we look forward to uh, speaking more with you and following your journey. You know, the bell curve will be posting every all the cool updates that you guys publicly announce and uh, just helping our followers come more along with what you guys are doing at SCP and um, all your other previous companies. And we're excited to be along for the ride, man. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah.